0: For more information, visit www.novic.com. This episode is brought to you by Pragma. Pragma is a back-end game engine founded by the engineering leaders who built the platforms for some of the largest live-service games, including League of Legends, Fortnite, Destiny 2, and Plants vs. Zombies 2. Pragma powers services like accounts, matchmaking, and player data for the world's most ambitious live service games. The Pragma backend game engine is the only solution that is truly extensible so that game designers aren't blocked by clumsy black box designs. With Pragma, studios no longer need to hire a large backend team and get the ultimate peace of mind that their game will always be ready to scale. To learn more, simply head to pragma.gg or check out the link in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by our partners at Dive. Dive is a fully outsourced BI as a service solution providing an enterprise grade data platform and services for gaming studios on all platforms. Dive's BI tools and service of data experts replace the need for a full in-house BI team, saving studios hundreds of thousands of dollars yearly. If you're interested in learning how Dive can unleash the power of data in your game's business and save money doing so, simply head to dive.games or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome
1: to the very first Davik Roundtable episode of 2024. I am your host Devin Becker, and with me, as always, great panelists. You should recognize these faces by now if you're a long-time listener. With Matt and Dave joining us for the very first inaugural episode of the year, because of course, this is going to keep going well into you know 2030 and beyond. So this is the first of <laughs> many of these, but this is the first inaugural one for me. I'm so excited about starting the year off right. How Happy are you New guys year. doing? Yeah, Happy New Happy Year to all year the listeners off. as well. Hopefully, you guys are all. Itching with that week we had off last week on podcast episodes for everyone to get some new news going on. We do have a bit of news. There's definitely some things going on here. We have a couple different things, Uh, some stuff touching on some things from the end of the year, and the beginning of the year uh, around game awards that we've talked about a little little bit before, some updates on some numbers that are not looking so great for one industry here that we'll dive into. And then China really trying to uh, stir the pot. We'll dig into a little bit. And then Square Enix. Their yearly letter, always fun to talk about what they like to just really poke everyone at. So why don't we just start off with the Game Awards?
2: Yeah, so the Game Awards. Some of the numbers are out in terms of the audience draw, and I just wanted to take a moment to actually compare, do some compare and contrast. Game Awards, there was a lot of talk about, that was a great show, some interesting product announcements but we were able to draw 118 million viewers for it. So if you were to compare that to some other award shows, like what are some of the biggest award shows around the world? The Oscars last year drew in 20 million people. The Super Bowl last year, which was seen as being able to draw in a huge number of people, 115 million people. I think we're always, I think, in, inside the games industry, we always tire the comparisons of games is just for kids, it's just such a, a niche industry. It's numbers like these that I always like to help pull out and say, look, games is much more than just a niche industry. It's not just basic entertainment. It's something that is a worldwide phenomenon and and destroys award shows for other types of industries. I think you get a certainly a lot more interesting takes coming out of the award show for the games side of things than you do any other form of entertainment. So I think being able to beat the Super Bowl with it's just an award show, not an actual live stream of a, a major event. It's not a League of Legends event or anything like that. It's just the award show, and you'd be able to pull out nearly 120 million viewers. I think that really is a testament to the world of video games.
1: Quick question um, on that, then, in terms of when you're comparing these two things, the Game Awards, is it which platforms is this going across Like in terms of the numbers? Because you're talking about like Super Bowl, you're talking about TV. Game Awards, I'm assuming you're not talking traditional TV.
2: And these numbers are actually across all streaming, so all platforms. When you're talking about the Oscars, you're talking about Super Bowl. Those are also those are the aggregate numbers, so not just across TV, but any other platforms that they were uh, pulling people across. It is, I think, a fairly apples-to-apples apples comparison. Absolutely, the vast majority of viewers for both the Super Bowl and for the Oscars certainly were on through... Uh, traditional broadcast television broadcast there there are increasing numbers of people are watching it and are consuming that through streaming media but yeah it is it's all across and it is over a, a number of days as well so they are catching people that are watching the the content after it actually occurs live
3: what do you make of some of the criticisms that have come along with this success i, I think two two big ones come to mind one being that it's essentially like a marketing vehicle it's a lot of promotions and trailers and oh we're launching this game on a new platform come check it out and then the other one with success with exposure comes more pressure from the audience and I think one of the things that a lot of people called out was that they made no mention of layoffs in the industry for example but what do you make of these criticisms
2: It is, I think, a really tough place for the producers of the show to be in. Starting off with your last point around no mention of the layoffs, I certainly heard that a lot. And I think where the producers wanted to take things was focus on what the positives were of the year. I think there really could there there is the potential always to have some sort of reflection on the year as a whole and the layoffs certainly were the biggest story, bigger than Unity, bigger than the leaks at Sony. But I think from the producer's perspective, they wanted to focus on the positives because th- they were there to help celebrate the wins inside the video game industry, the, the fantastic content that came out this year. And I think that was the direction that they want to stay in. As for advertising. Yeah, it certainly is. If you look at the thing that the Super Bowl is most known for are the commercials. How many people are like, I'm going to not pay attention to what's going on because the game's on, and I'm going to pay attention when the commercials come back on. That's a huge part of the viewership, I'm sure, the number of people there just for the commercials. So I don't think it's a case of not being able to shy away from Being able to use large events where you've got a huge committed audience, people that are fully engaged with the content and using that as an opportunity to sell games. As the industry moves away from those tentpole conventions, E3 is no more. It's not a case of we'll see what comes around next year. It's just gone. That's a huge marketing tentpole that's gone from the industry. And we're seeing more and more diversification in terms of where people and when people are advertising their games, their upcoming games. And so I think it'll be more around when are opportunities that we can get a, a bunch of the consumers together and and take that as an opportunity to release hopefully more goodness amongst us all.
1: I got to wonder, then, what, what... – if they next year, for example, didn't have all of those reveals, all those like games coming up, that, all that stuff, would people have even watched it as much? Because there would be maybe less to gain for a viewer. Like, oh, cool. I found out who won the award. That's not nearly as exciting as finding out about brand new games. And I don't know how much they promoted that ahead of the awards thing, but now everyone's going to expect that going into the next one, right? Like that this becomes a big reveal event as well. And so I got to imagine they've got to live up to that next year to keep that
2: viewership going up. I think so. I think so. And if you look at the Oscars is not, Is actually the opposite of that, right? That is pure awards. They don't use that as a huge platform to release when the next Marvel movie is coming out, the next season of Reacher on Amazon is coming out. They're not using those to tease the big series or the big movies coming out. They are focused on the celebration of of what has gone on the previous year. And yeah, I do think that this, the spectacle of what, what is new coming out, what are the going to be the great experience or the, the great announcements coming out is going to be p- definitely part of the draw and will continue to be part of the draw going forward. We are an entertainment industry yeah, and one where you know we do like to differentiate ourselves from the other industries. And I think you know, us having a different types of award show than other award shows is great. It helps. It reflects what we are.
1: I got to imagine a different we, could, type of entertainment. we could definitely see Oscars or other some awards show actually like copying that idea, though, and being like, we're losing numbers. We need to have something that's like exciting for people to, to watch. I could see some potential yeah. for them, like copying some of that idea. Maybe not the Oscars, maybe something else, but it seems like a why not idea. And if this was that successful in terms of the viewership numbers you're talking about.
2: Yeah, and both the Oscars, the Emmys, all the award major Entertainment award shows outside of video games certainly have seen a lot of decrease in viewership over the years. I think the Emmys, for example, I think peaked in 2000, or no, sorry, it was the Oscars that peaked in 2000 in terms of overall viewership. Emmys is you a know, similar timeline where they've seen their decreasing numbers. Maybe they do take a page from the world of video games. Now, One of the differences is, I think, from a pure numbers perspective, the number of games in, that come out every year. Are they going to be able to have as many types of <laughs> announcements for movies or television series as you do for games? It'll be interesting to see if they're ready to be able to show that that amount of content that early on. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they decide to borrow, especially when they see that the viewership for a games awards is six times the numbers for the Oscars.
1: I gotta wonder if some of that could be any kind of accuracy difference too, in the sense that if you're talking about traditional TV. If it's like Nielsen rating style stuff and they're not actually getting like fully accurate numbers compared to like digital stuff where yeah. you're pulling numbers in differently, but there's also room for inaccuracy from things like bots or whatever, like different ways of viewing it. Like Twitch is certainly not known for having accurate viewership numbers, for example, <laughs> despite the fact that theoretically it could offer more accurate ones. So it'll be interesting to see if that, this sort of like, people comparing the size of viewership becomes a thing where the, across the different medias, like becomes a competition in a way of like different ways of people looking at it because obviously they're trying to advertisers in the current space and that's always a big battle especially in streaming it seems like streaming stuff has trouble getting advertisers just based off the few advertisements whenever you watch anything streaming it's like the same three at a time obviously there's not a huge amount of advertisers and so that that kind of makes me wonder if this stuff starts to then go hey if this was like just pure digital viewership. Maybe there's a lot more viewers out there watching the stuff that we maybe we should shift from traditional media maybe a little bit more and maybe this starts to affect that whole broadcast medium as it like as this the younger generations or maybe even this is 35 and up watching all these. I would love for them to have demographic information to go with this stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting if we ever get to the day where we talk about the uh, the prices for a commercial and the games award is now at million for a 30 second ad. I I really do wonder if part of it is having still old ideas around who the video game consumer is. And is it a case of do we really just want to advertise to 18 to 34 year old males when in reality the game's audience is such a much broader demographic than that. And I think part of that will come down to having a better understanding of who that viewership was and realizing that maybe this is actually a, a more valuable audience to to bring advertising to than potentially what older perceptions are of that audience is.
1: Well, you can see a funny transition between that where you had Eminem perform recently, right, in Fortnite, but didn't he just perform in the Super Bowl a year before that or one of the most recent mm-hmm. years? And so it's just like there is obviously the crossover there and the, the, the attempts to like maybe the Super Bowl is trying to appeal younger, but then Fortnite's maybe trying to appeal older because Eminem's not exactly like a hot new young act. And so it's funny to see this lead over where everyone's trying to figure out like who is the audience anymore as people lead between these mediums. And video games seems to hit. There's plenty of people probably well into their 50s, 60s, super into video games that just started with older ones. And never stopped. And then going all the way to kids playing Roblox super young and stuff like that. It's I don't know if there's really like a, a core gamer like demographic the way we used to have, and now it's just spread across everyone. And like you said, then that expands the audience pretty drastically. And then people maybe just need to rethink their assumptions around that. But
2: yeah. And and I do also think part of it is still. I was reading some statistics recently, a large percentage of people that play games still do not consider themselves gamers, do not want to be associated with that term, uh, or don't think that they qualify for that term, when in actuality they do. If you look at the across, including all types, all platforms for games, there are more female players than there are male players. And I do think part of it is just having a better understanding of what that audience truly does look like. There certainly are some challenges in terms of what platform the awards are really going after. The Game Awards wasn't a huge, you know, true cross-platform where mobile was represented the same as console, same as PC. So there certainly are some audience differences there. But I do think that once advertisers have a better handle on who they could be, those those commercials too, that, that hopefully we'll see more a more diversified understanding of the gaming audience. In terms of maybe
1: a poor understanding of the audience or just numbers not really matching what we're hoping for, I think it's a good opportunity to start talking about this report regarding VR, maybe not looking as good as we would like, but I think probably is the realism check that we all needed.
3: Yeah, we got some new research from Omdia on the VR market and its outlook for the next several years. And the TLDR is they are not expecting good things in the next, let's say, three to five years for VR. They attract the install base for VR headsets at around 23 million, 23 and a half million for 2023. And that is holding steady from the year before. And they're expecting only marginal growth by 2026. In fact, they're expecting the number of headsets sold to continue to drop actually for the next several years. It's going to drop in 24, it's going to drop again in 25, and we won't reach 2023 levels again until 2027, according to Omdia. This is headsets, to be clear. And this is in the context of Apple is going to be releasing their Vision Pro supposedly early this year. I don't know that they've confirmed a date just yet, but I've what I've read it was early 2024. Some of the prognosticators pumping up VR as this thing that's going to have a huge resurgence, it may very well, but not in the short term, according to Omdia, at least. Some of the factors that they're citing here uh, as to why VR is seeing this dismal performance is perhaps a reversion from pandemic peaks, When uh, headset sales were at their highest in 2021 and 2022, inflationary pressures impacting consumer spending, underperformance of some of the major headsets, MetaQuest Three, PSVR Two, Pico Four. I think some of those companies have also had layoffs in their VR divisions, and that's on the headset side. Also on the content side, Omnia is is saying that spend on VR content declined to 844 million in 2023 from. Last year's nine hundred. Well, I guess two years ago now, nine hundred thirty-four million. So a drop of nearly a hundred million dollars in content. Anecdotal evidence here and there of new games coming out. Probably you you have a lot to say here, Devin, on like the highlights of VR content and where those are to be found. But maybe that's just not breaking through to the public. And in somewhat related news, we're seeing some VR content developers. Impacted. A a longtime developer, First Contact Entertainment based here in Los Angeles, just shut down, citing a lack of support for VR within the games industry. More to come. We'll see how Apple performs with their headset. I think it's probably not going to sell a ton of units in the beginning, but I don't think that's what they're going for. It's a vision pro. It's not the vision everyday consumer. So I think they're trying to reach the high end and they're going to build the market from there. We'll see how that goes, how their long-term vision plays out. What do you think, Devin? I know you have some thoughts here.
1: Yeah. I'd be curious to, to see if they, like, obviously this report just came out, but were they able to, for example, capture holiday sales for the MetaQuest? Because the Quest 2 was a huge holiday seller previously. And obviously, like you said, pandemic spending and all the extra money people had, all that stuff like there's a lot of factors that that went into that. But I gotta imagine there was at least some probably okay sales for the Quest Three. But yeah, like it, it does probably feel like it's probably less than Quest Two, even though it's the holidays. But people were a lot more pinched. I think these holidays, and also looking into 2024, I don't think people are like, oh, that's gonna turn around suddenly. So I got to imagine they were like, mm, yeah, maybe we don't get that this year because maybe little Jimmy doesn't play with his Quest 2 as much as he used to. No, it's not like the PS4 to PS5 or something, clearly. And it's like the jump just isn't there the same way and the hype isn't there. And it's, I think a lot of this stuff, it's like marketing combined with just not finding solid use cases, combined with just the, the audience, like not really being super hyped all the time about it because you do get a bit tired. It re- even requires more physical interaction then some people a lot of gamers are used to just sitting there doing this like that's like the Wii was like the most physical interaction like a lot of us gamers had seen in a long time and suddenly you're like whoa this is tiring and you throw a VR into it it's not super like just play it real quick and it's like the far opposite end of mobile in a lot of ways and so I think that's it's going to be hard like just market to push in general and like the lack of real solid competitors to meta actually works against it Because it's like if you're pretty much your choices are whatever Meta's throwing out there or the Pika, which is honestly just feels not super competitive with that. And then Valve hasn't done much in a while with the Vive stuff. So it's just like if Meta can drive up, it's just cool. Even as the developers, they mentioned, I think your best outcome you could expect as a VR developer was to get bought by Meta. And like the FTC pretty much curbed that so much that I think people are just like, that's not going to happen. And so now it's like you're not going to sell a huge amount of sales for any game, even if you're like the top seller on there. And that's not a great outlook for a game developer unless you're really small. And it's not like a platform you could just be like indie developer for very easily. It requires like a ton of testing, a ton of like handling all kinds of wacky stuff in there. And that's the problem. It's just the whole market is a really cool futuristic thing that's still just so lagged behind where it needs to be to really be a huge hit. And I just, I don't know if we get AR there first, almost with this mixed reality stuff. Meta's pushing almost seems like it had a lot more potential than even the VR stuff just for potential use cases being a lot more interesting.
3: Yeah. Just to put the numbers into context real quick, and then I'll pass it to you, Dave, like the most optimistic estimates here from Omdia for headset sales way out into 2028 are just under 10 million. And there was I just did a quick Google here while you were talking. PlayStation 5 has sold 50 million units as of last month. We're not talking we're talking not even one-fifth of PlayStation. So yeah, there's a content problem, but the the hardware install base is not that not even gonna be that big at the rosiest of estimates five years from now.
2: Yeah, I do think that we are seeing a bit of the post-COVID drag on VR. It's just not immune to it, same as the video game industry as a whole. And unfortunately, I think we're going to see a little bit of a similar time frame as what we saw or a similar time for VR developers as we saw back when we had the previous little peak when the HTC headsets came out, the the earlier versions of Oculus came out. There's a lot of excitement around the industry then. And a lot of those developers ended up pivoting into business use cases, or in the case of the company I was working at, we did theme park applications, or in some cases, reverting back to other, uh, other platforms inside the games industry. Unfortunately, I think we're going to see a similar situation where people are either reverting back to earlier platforms for those developers or looking at, or looking at exiting, unfortunately. I think the industry with the numbers that that Matt's talking about there, we're really looking at an industry that can support uh, a few really good developers, but you're not going to be able to support like a a huge swath of different types of developers and having those opportunities to get the different types of experiences from your AAA or quadruple A games all the way down to your Indies. It's going to be a lot more difficult. There certainly are some great developers inside the VR space. Um, I'll always hold up a fellow BC developer publisher uh, with Cloudhead. They do some fantastic experiences inside VR. And Dreams is another case where, uh, you know, and that's actually a case of a developer who did some fantastic VR content, ended up selling themselves to to a publisher to another publisher. So I think it is going to be a, a tough go for a lot of VR developers, and will continue to be for a while. I think people were starting to look to either with a, a PlayStation. VR2 as being a great opportunity for the VR world to continue expanding, and unfortunately, right from the very beginning, we saw the estimates for sales for for the PlayStation VR2 started off in a decent number, and then slowly just have and have again. And current install numbers are, are unfortunately really low. So there are some very talented VR developers out there, and some great content. Just as Matt said, the install base is not there for to the, be able to get those games out to, and I think it's going to continue having a hard time pushing it as a, a platform that is really going to see that mass adoption for the time being.
1: And um, another interesting trend I noticed too, like a lot. Oh, it- in terms of like you're mentioning people pivoting away from games a little bit, is I've noticed some of the applications that have even had long-term success starting to pivot out to having their own hardware, like big screen, putting out their own headset sort of thing that was dedicated to big screen, immersed with trying to push out their visor thing as well, which we're talking like a movie watching experience app and a productivity multi-monitor work app, not games, right? Trying to find their niche, but also pushing hardware. Possibly as an opportunity for them to extend that. But of course, these are apps that have been around for a long time. Small development teams that have been moderately successful because of that. But again, it's not games, right? And that's why, because Mm -hmm. it's a lot more expensive, a lot more difficult to do games.
2: It is, but some of the things that people are doing with VR right now are incredible. From teaching how to do operations, the visualization of mining operations. Not to mention the the
1: military, always using
2: that stuff military applications absolutely but even just from from the consumer side or, or other business applications there are some really fantastic things that people have been able to do inside VR just training be able to train people in situations that are either too dangerous for them to be training otherwise I've never used a I've never operated a nuclear power plant before Should we let someone try that on a real thing or maybe put them through a VR simulation first? No, I, I think that the, the training industry certainly has seen the, the capabilities of what VR can do and be able to truly immerse someone inside an experience and be able to allow people to learn by, by doing as much as you possibly can do, by experiencing something as much as you can without doing the real thing. And with dangerous situations, that's an ideal case where you can really train somebody how to be trying out an operation Virtually before trying it out on uh, on a cadaver, or then moving on to the real thing. But uh, yeah, I think it's it, we're going to continue seeing some great VR developers trying to find what their niche is, and if it's not in games, it will be in other applications. But I think games is going to be a hard place for that to really support a large group of developers. I will see. I will say that I did see that the Quest app did spike up around christmas time or just after christmas in terms of a uh, number of installs in the ios stores there i think there certainly were a number of quest 3s sold during christmas period but uh, how much that actually translate over the long term i i don't think we're going to see a huge yeah
1: well, probably November went to soon. existing quest users right probably didn't gain a huge amount of people that had never used one before
2: hmm.
1: maybe that's part of the audience too or part of the problem is that it's pretty much like VR enthusiasts, essentially, at the moment, more so than the average person jumping in. Like the opposite of what the Wii did, right? <laughs> where it was like, it brought in all kinds of people that didn't play games normally. But it's funny how this topic kind of keeps go, circling around the idea that like may, like we always want games to be the thing that pushes all the new technology, but it, it keeps seeming like no matter how many times we've tried it, that doesn't seem to be the big pusher of the technology for VR, other than pushing some of the tech, but maybe not pushing like the audience use cases more so because I I think we haven't found like a compelling enough game experience. That's dude. You have to get VR. Alex was like half life. Alex was pretty cool and stuff like that. But none of them were like, why are you playing that stupid old console thing? Like you should be in VR right now. We haven't had that kind of moment.
2: I think if you look at, Opportunities to do experiences where VR is part of the experience, the overall experience. So going to like a sandbox or I forget the name of the the Disney backed one that ended up going, having some troubles anyways, uh, but going to more of an experience, be that a theme park experience or more of a, a family entertainment experience where you're able to get more than just sitting or standing with a headset on. You're able to introduce things like, having fans giving wind blowing is having a sense of actual yeah like being able to bring in the other senses and having it as part of a truly immersive experience i think those are things you cannot accomplish inside just playing a a video game yeah there's certainly a level of immersion with a large screen in front of you you got controllers in your hand but it honestly if you can do vr you can It's hard to match that level of immersion today. It's just that it is so many more things than just a headset. It is, you're either walking through an experience where there's actually physical walls, you're incorporating the other senses into what it is, either the sense of feeling of wind against your skin, feeling physical props inside the space to align with what you're seeing inside the visualization. And if you're able to incorporate all those things, then it's a fantastic experience, just how many people can afford to bring in a 3 off or a 6 doff off motion platform into their house that can move a car or a motorcycle.
1: When I went, one place where I did see that it seemed like what you're talking about was pretty actually integrated a lot more than what we see in America was in Japan, at least in Tokyo. Like It seemed like there was a lot more uses, especially in theme park kind of areas, because they have a lot of these smaller theme parks as well that tend to use a lot of this tech like, a lot more to to be able to have these sort of compact experiences that are, like, more immersive. Like, I, I did one where you're just, like, in a wheelchair in this horror experience. But obviously, you're just sitting in an actual physical chair. But they're using yeah. that sort of that sense of immersion to, to play off that. And then I saw, I think, Sega's Joy, like, theme park in the mall that looked pretty VR-centric. And they're the Tokyo Red Tower stuff. So it just seemed like that's one country that seems to be at least pushing it quite a bit in terms of, installed stuff as you said getting it into the home though that seems to be where there's a lot of problem like i still see vr experiences in mall kiosks or in Dave and busters there's definitely yeah. attempts to yeah. push it. and i do see occasionally people playing those but again that's that's such a different thing even though it's using the same ones you could use at home because it's still mostly just vibes and things like that it's just not having that same like people aren't trying to set up a theme park in their bedroom or living room the same way
3: yeah it's like an arcade model right like you don't want to buy the hardware yourself so if someone Sets up a dedicated area for having all sorts of. So it's
1: the vibe of the Neo work. Geo of our era. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we can change this. Right, I think we're just as the report said. Though I think probably realistic to be like, yeah, maybe more like 2026. Unfortunately, I think all of us would like to be like, yeah, we could totally turn this around in 2024. The question is whether or not Meta stays the course. I think is that's the real one because they've just been burning cash, left and right, in this whole thing and I, it looks like they're trying to turn around stuff like horizon like the their whole weird game experience they're trying to do but it's I don't know it seems like a little bit of a stretch for, for them in terms of like actually being able to become what they were with Facebook but with VR at least anytime soon so I think all of us here would love to see that happen I think we're all VR fans here it's just not happening just yet. So maybe give it another couple of years to cook. Same with some of the AI stuff. I think we'll see similar kind of idea of some of that kind of like maybe not panning out as, as exciting as we were hoping, but it's still like cool stuff happening, regardless of whether or not it, it's fully mainstreamed. But on the topic of mainstreaming like the stuff in, in other countries, China has been trying to, seems like anti mainstream gaming. As of late, which has been pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, so is China going through their Unity Fees moment? China did release some new guidelines, or they're basically floated some new guidelines in terms of including some new spending limits for online players, bans on rewards for things like daily logins or additional bonuses for purchases, things that that player or that uh, games do in June. Continue to incentivize players' spending. Also, taking a look at some of the loot box materials, the gotcha mechanics, there is a long list of items that, that the China regulators were looking at either banning or certainly curtailing in terms of what the players were or what the games were able to offer. This unfortunately had a huge effect as one can imagine on companies like 10 cent net 10 cent shares fell as much as 16% net e shares fell as much as 25% and this actually ended up causing the the Chinese regulators to take a look at what it was that they had put forward. And they decided what they were going to do is take a bit of a step back. They were going to listen to what it was that the, the public was saying and what the game developers were saying. But my expectation is that they will not necessarily pull everything, but they will make some modifications. When word that they were going to take a look at some of those modifications came out, There was some recovery in terms of stock. Shares in Tencent, they ended up climbing about 5% after having that big drop. Shares in NetEase increased 10%. In both cases, still not recovering from their full drops, but able to at least bring some some monies back. In terms of, as an example of how much of an effect this is, NetEase takes about 80% of its revenue Domestically. So, as you can imagine, being handicapped in terms of how they can monetize their games did have a huge effect. Now, another interesting thing that uh, took place was that when there was that huge effect on the stock market, people were there was certainly a reaction. But instead of the Chinese government looking at maybe we should replace the people that were part of creating these new regulations, what they decided to do is replace the person that announced the regulations. So I really do think that these new regulations or, or variation of what was announced will go forward. They're going to take a look at what kind of level they can... They can move those regulations too, but they will move forward with them. Now, at the same time, they were trying to buy themselves, I think, a bit of good faith in terms of the number of licenses that they then approved right after the news. There was the largest number of licenses that was approved in one month for a couple of years now, at least. I think to help soften the blow some, but there was only approximately a thousand licenses released last year, which obviously was a huge increase to the, I think 89 it was for the previous year, but there still is a limitation on the number of games that are being licensed inside the market. And when the limitations on the number of licenses were really kicking in, you certainly did see an increase in Tencent and NetEase, especially comparatively NetEase. Tencent had already been looking to diversify their market where they were investing in terms of companies and games in more the North American and European spaces, taking huge investment in companies like Supercell, Riot, as well as smaller investments in games and developers. NetEase started following those lines, and was increasing the number of investments inside North American and European companies. I do expect with the with these new regulations seeming to be taking effect fairly soon, and unfortunately, they're still unknown in terms of what the the full breadth of those regulations will end up being. But I do expect that they will come in at some point. I think we'll continue to see Tencent NetEase and and NetEase even doubling down, tripling down in terms of how can they start Increasing the amount of revenue they've got coming in from North America and Europe, losing a huge chunk of 80%. That's a huge blow. And especially since they lost World of Warcraft distribution in, inside China, it sounds like talks maybe, but yet they're in for some challenging times in terms of where they're going to see their revenue in, in China with the sort of the one-two punch of reduced number of licenses and now reduced monetization opportunities.
1: In terms of netties, I actually noticed a couple of things interesting related to one of their games that just came out somewhat recently, related to this, called Blood Strike, which is like similar to like Call of Duty in in that sort of like Deathmatch and Battle Royale, their person first, first person kind of stuff. But you know, one one thing that was interesting is the monetization, we usually see the US, things like that, or China. There's certain countries we don't usually see like a ton of good monetization coming out of, but it's been interesting to follow that, like Mexico and Indonesia and stuff like that have actually been the top countries where they've been monetizing, which is surprising because that's not the usual case, uh, especially for like kind of a semi niche first person shooter. So I thought that was interesting that maybe there are some opportunities in other countries with, that have struggled to monetize traditionally. And the other thing is that one of the regulations had to do with that was drafted or whatever had to do with if you were selling a loot box for something that you also had to offer the opportunity to purchase it individually. And I noticed they actually happened to do that in this game. Like maybe they're just trying it out, but they had like some of the things would have like, you could very cheaply do the gotcha and have a chance at getting it, which is probably very low chance, or you could just buy it outright for a lot more money. And so it seemed like they were already experimenting in that direction. So I wonder if NetEase especially, as you said, they've been looking, they see what's going on, they know which way the wind's blowing, and they're starting to prepare, it seems like, a little bit. And of course, that could just be them just doing their own thing and, and seeming like that. But I thought that was interesting lining up with just one of their newest releases.
2: Yeah, I think that game probably takes on a couple of trends more recently, looking at number one, monetizing appropriately for different locales and not just focusing on monetizing through... Traditional app store. So, being able to bring in partners such as Exola to bring outside of, of app store monetization for titles, as well as making sure that you're localizing not just content but payment methodologies being able to bring in like gift cards or alternate payment plan versions, payment through your cell phone provider is another one that does well. And I think they also may have decided to take a a page out of Free Fire's playbook and go, you know what? We may not be able to go head-to-head with Call of Duty in some of the tier one countries, but there are a ton of players in tier two and tier three countries, and we may not be able to make $100 $100 off of a player, we may only be able to make $10 off of, you know, our, our large spending players, but there are a lot of them out there. So you can make it up in terms of volume instead.
3: I wanted to double down on this, this point about loot boxes and gotcha that Devin mentioned as a product guy, this jumps out to me. Like the, what they're saying is that they have to allow users to be able to purchase the specific item they want directly that is in the loot box. And that's basically antithetical to, to the design of gotchas. The whole idea is that you're taking your content and you're spreading it out. So it's harder to acquire it um, directly because there, we all know there are going to be high spenders that come in and just buy the thing they want right away. And if you do that for all the content that you might want as a player, then what's left for you to do in the game? Or there's certainly that much less for you do and so you reach end of content and you're more likely to churn this is why one of the reasons why gotchas exist and are so prevalent to me that's like a huge thing for some of these juggernaut titles like genshin like pubg mobile i'm sure there's a whole bunch more i'm forgetting it'd be interesting to see how they adapt to that i'm sure there are some tricks that will get attempted to try and revitalize the loot box formula but if you zoom out china what is the biggest or second biggest gaming market in the world. And if they are effectively nerfing loot boxes, they are previously, it was just smaller countries like uh, Belgium, for example, that had this specific uh, legislation against loot boxes. It's much easier for a publisher to exclude a small European market that doesn't move the needle too much than it is to exclude China altogether altogether. Now, I'm sure there are some games that are already China-specific SKUs and it's maybe a little bit easier to do that. But the larger point I'm trying to make here is that uh, given the size of the Chinese market, perhaps we see some more global movement away from loot boxes and gotcha altogether, because this is already something that many fans have wanted. I think a lot of developers are not super comfortable with these also. Maybe we see a larger shift away from it, and China is making one of the biggest steps in that direction to get the
2: ball rolling. But I think in terms of buying the loot box content outright, I think that'll be actually a little bit more acceptable inside the Chinese market versus some of the Western markets. Given that there isn't the same stigma to buying to win in Chinese games as there are inside North American and, and European titles. So I think from a player's perspective, I'm not sure if there would be that much of a a pushback against that—the the ones that are able to spend will be the ones going. Sweet, I can get to where I want to be that much faster. And and I think the audience overall may be a little bit more accepting of that, just given how the audience does typically view those types of things. But but yeah, it, it, I certainly do agree. It will be interesting to see how that plays out. I think the other part is: Are we now going to see? many more Chinese games being pushed to North American and European audiences. So games that were originally built for a Chinese market where they were very happy with the amount of revenue that was coming in for those games domestically, will they now be looking okay? okay, now in order for us to reach those revenue targets that we've set, we're going to have to push these games to more of a worldwide market than, than just a domestic market.
1: Yeah, and obviously we've seen, for example, some countries have to do that like right off the bat with South Korea and Web3 games, for example, where they can't even just release them domestically. So they just right off the bat had to go with the international like style. And even the loot box stuff it gets interesting related to that. But I guess it is a funny example of what, what you're saying, Matt with the supercell where they went away from loot boxes with brawl stars saw it actually not help so much as you would expect and then actually started to move a little bit back to some of that then suddenly in clash mini the latest big pivot for that game went fully into gotchas as the big monetization which is just a funny complete pivot but at the same time i think it's important for listeners like as well to that we think point out there's an important difference between when we just lump everything into loot box and gotchas in that loot box is generally just considered like just a straight up like you buy something you have a chance of getting stuff whereas gotchas have evolved to be a lot more complex mechanisms with things like pities removing gotchas there's like a a whole bunch of different ones that have developed over time especially in asia that have made it much more complicated than just a simple loot box table that i think and I, I think it's important to, to point that out because that may start to become part of the complexity of a lot of these regulations or the way the law starts looking at it, that there is different uh, aspects that need to be considered. Say, for example, the ones where that are pretty common now. Even games like Call of Duty and a lot of other Western games where, you know, the loot boxes or the gotchas where it removes stuff as you get it. So like maybe 10 different items. And of course, your chance of getting like the best one is pretty low early on, but it starts removing items as you spend. And eventually, like you can get that thing. And a lot of times those escalate in prices each time you buy something and then all these other complex mechanisms. But the point being that there are whole bunch of different ones that are starting to penetrate the West pretty heavily as well. And starting to overtake loot boxes, partially because they just have a lot of more interesting mechanisms around making the spender feel comfortable with that system. And also because sometimes they make a lot more money, as you said, Matt, around spend depth is a huge problem. And I think Marvel snaps a great example of that where they constantly are struggling to find a way to keep that spend depth up without just directly selling cards they had a gotcha stuff in the beta that they had to throw away the whole nexus event thing that was too gotcha on the nose. And then they've had to tiptoe back into that territory to try and keep their monetization up. So I think I just want to bring that up. This is, I think going to be an ongoing topic for 2024 in general. I don't think this is going to be like a, a short-term conversation, whether it be around China or other countries regulating or talking about it. We touched on it a little bit with the gods Unchained thing, I think was like a good broach into that as well with web three being something that will be, I think, more to this. And maybe with China in general, maybe we see Web3 become a part of this as well when they're starting to push these regulations around incentivizing users, which is what most of this was, right? Like, you're, you, we don't want incentivizing users by daily login rewards. We don't want incentivizing users to spend for this or that. And it's, like, hey, we don't want you to incentivize people to spend Then like, what's your business model at that point? And so like, it, like, the government kneecapping a lot of game industry stuff is not, exclusive to china right we see it happening elsewhere as well as you pointed out so i think this is a, again this is an important topic we're going to be touching on a lot i think but on that note moving slightly farther east or slightly farther west of me japan and square enix with their ever so fun i don't know what you'd call it at this point uh, maybe it's like link bait letters <laughs> clickbait
3: Yes, the New Year's letter from the Square Enix CEO. Some people get excited about the Supercell annual letter. I personally get excited about the Square Enix New Year's letter from the CEO. Maybe that's just because I'm a bit of a fanboy for the company, but I've written about them previously. I'll touch on this in a little bit. But the headline here is that the new CEO, Takashi Kiryu, has published his first New Year's letter. He took over last June, I believe, for the outgoing CEO. And this this letter takes a slightly different direction from those of previous years. So to start things off, just to quickly summarize, he reflected on 2023 and, and pointed to a couple of areas of new growth. One, ironically, given the, the previous discussion, was XR, so VR and AR as an area of new growth. He, he referenced some fields like architecture, And real world experiences as driving some of the adoption. So, uh, hearkening back to what we were saying earlier, but of course, he also mentioned AI as a major growth area. And he sees this as a big growth opportunity for Square Enix moving forward. So, he talked a little bit about how he sees the company evolving in 2024 and a lot of talk about increasing efficiencies, knowledge sharing, both on the development and the publishing side, all things that you should be doing as a quality company. Then he returns to the topic of AI. And uh, I'm going to quote here, we also intend to be aggressive in applying AI and other cutting edge technologies to both our content development and our publishing functions. So he's talking about in the short term, this will be more of an increasing productivity uh, factor. But in the long term, the hope is that AI and other technologies will help them create brand new forms of content, which I think aligns with a lot of prognostications we've heard from people in the industry, myself included. So that they really see this as an area of growth and business opportunity for the company moving forward. And then the other thing, maybe the other sort of topic du jour is transmedia. Kiryu talks about some of Square's, let's say, smaller businesses, comics and amusement, and seeing those have some synergies with their gaming business, their digital entertainment business, they call it. And they want to take a, a quote, multifaceted approach to leveraging our IP, including via film and animation adaptations. So they see this as an area of growth moving forward as well. And they plan to continue to focus on that. So those are the, the primary focus areas. And then the last thing I'll mention before turning it over here. Was what wasn't mentioned, which was uh, blockchain and Web three. So they, there was literally only one mention of blockchain in the entire letter. Previous couple of years have discussed it at length. Do we take this to be a, a pivot here? Are they just maybe afraid of the public backlash? I personally, I don't think they're moving away from it. They're just talking about new stuff. Again, this is a public facing letter for a public facing company, so they have to speak to some of the things that are on the minds of investors. Yeah, I'll pause there. What What do you make of this new focus on AI? And do you read anything into the lack of uh, discussion on Web3?
2: I think I, I actually put more weight on the fact that Web3 is not there. Like they do use these letters as setting the public direction for the company. And the fact that Web3 was not there, I think does actually speak Pretty high volume. It's a loud message. It's, I think it's pretty loud and clear saying, look, in the past we were focused on Web3. We're going to pull back from that. I think our effort's going to be more in in these areas. I do expect that they'll have some continuing work inside blockchain, but I do think that they are, you know, publicly setting the direction for the company and are, are saying that the future isn't as much. Blockchain moving forward. I do think that in terms of what the transmedia probably looks like for Square it is most likely leveraging their IP and bringing that into more traditional media, be that animation series, movies, rather than many other types of transmedia. Um, but it will be. I think it will be interesting to see how how Square approaches that. As you said, it's transmedia is certainly one of the buzzwords these days and. A lot of people are looking at how can they take full advantage of what their IP is and, and bring across as many platforms as they can. AI, yeah, I think it's, I think it, in reality, I think AI is a little bit of the, let's take advantage of the buzzwords that everyone's talking about and ensure that the, our stock is maintained because we are able to incorporate some of the hottest, latest technology inside inside our development pipelines. How much it truly is incorporated into their production pipelines, I think will certainly be interesting to see. And what elements do they actually utilize AI for? I, I think they're one of the companies that has a huge library of assets that they can use to help train any sort of AI in order to be able to help generate content for uh, production pipelines. So I think they can take a look at it from more of an ethical AI usage and that they'll be doing any training on their own content rather than content from other developers. But how much actually gets utilized in in uh, full actual production pipelines so It'd be interesting to see. Yeah,
1: I have to push back a little bit on the, uh, the Web3 the web side of things. Only because a couple of reasons. One, when this new guy came in, there was a big discussion about that. And he was just like, the kind of guy that was like, I'm not going to be super gung-ho public Web3, but I'm also not against it kind of thing. Where it's clear that he's it's not his priority, but that at the same time, he's fine with it and like interested in it. And I think it's more just like, hey, we're not going to consider that our main opportunity this year but we consider these other things to be a main opportunity. What Matt was saying was, this is more just, like, this is what we're excited about this year. Because you're talking about just the scope of a year, right? And games don't work on the scope of a year. Unless you're making hyper-casual, games don't exist on a yearly schedule. Or Call of Duty, if you consider that to be a yearly schedule. So it's just not really the thing. And so they they already have stuff out in Web3. Now, obviously, they baby-stepped into it. Very slow. Trickle into it. But the other reason I push back is Asia in general is still very gung ho about it in a lot of ways. Doesn't mean it will always be like this huge forefront thing. It's going to be stops and starts, companies trying things, failing, some other companies copying it, so finding some success. It'll be a mixed bag. Like it's definitely not going to be a salt thing. But it's not just Japan, it's Japan and South Korea and whoever else decides to jump in. But those two countries alone have bet pretty big on Web3 becoming a norm not a special thing to be calling out. And that's also part of it is that if they're considering it to be part of the norm of the future, you don't need to be talking about it in the CEO letter. It's just like, hey, we're, we're going to continue to learn from what's useful in that space and use it. But we're excited about this year because this is what's new that we can use because there's not a lot new in blockchain right now to talk about.
3: Yeah, I, I think I tend to agree with Devin here, uh, maybe I'm somewhere in the middle. As I uh, alluded to earlier, I, I wrote about Square Enix for Novic Digest last year, late summer, early fall, I think. And uh, the uh, one of the things I looked into was the new CEO. And yes, he's stepping into this new role, but he was the head of strategy before. So it's not like he was uninvolved in their decisions about Web3 and blockchain previously. But the other, the other side of the coin here, as Devin mentioned, this is not like Uh, publishers don't think about things on a a one-year timeline necessarily. And so some additional context worth considering here, this quarter right now up to March 24 is the final quarter of Square Enix's uh, previous, what they call medium-term plan, which is a three-year sort of business strategy uh, for how they approach their business. And so we should expect to see a new plan coming out early in the spring. And it's very possible that if you, rewind three years. That's what, 2021. So that was at the height of blockchain bull run. Maybe they decide we're going to ease off the gas a little bit. They'll still continue to invest because their prior stance was they wanted to be leaders in this space. They want to aggressively adopt new technologies. And to be clear, they mentioned in the letter, they're going to continue working on it. But maybe they ease off the gas a little bit and they shift towards AI or shift their priorities in, in some other direction with this new plan coming up we'll see what sort of signaling we get there and their earnings calls. They're going to unveil that at some point this year. So early this year. So I think that will give us some more insight hopefully in the coming months.
2: Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. When I was at Capcom for mobile games, I was meant to keep a rolling five-year plan. So if you can think how much things change inside mobile, but still expected to have a five-year plan, you know, They certainly, especially Japanese companies, certainly do to have a good understanding of what their product roadmap is going to look like for a long term. For console games, even longer than console and PC games space, certainly more than the five years. Five years is probably just the bare minimum. But what we're talking about, though, here, this is a public-facing letter. And I do think that they use this letter to help energize the energize the market. This is a part of this reason for this letter is to ensure that the market's really excited. They're going to go buy Square Enix stock. And with the changes that they've gone through recently in terms of the divestiture of a bunch of their titles, selling those off to Embracer, they certainly are looking at what are the things that are going to help get people excited about about the company. And I do think that it is interesting that blockchain was one of those things where they don't think that's what's going to get people excited about the stock today. So yes, product roadmaps many years in length getting people excited about their stock is much more short term and I think that's why this particular letter is a little bit more focused on AI, transmedia, XR versus versus blockchain. But I do think that they are still looking at me personally I do think that they'll be playing back some from blockchain.
1: Yeah, you don't see Disney talking about it publicly all the time, but they're still starting new projects constantly in that space. And it's one of those things where, yeah, of course, we're going to hedge our bets and be involved. We just don't have to tout it all the time and make a big deal out of that if people aren't super excited about it. As you said, if it's about driving excitement and people aren't excited about that right now, yeah, you're not going to talk about that. You're just going to either do something that's exciting and hopefully drive interest down the road on that, or you're just not. And I I think it's just funny to like contrast though. If you're talking about a company whose value is in its IP around stuff like final fantasy, AI is actually the opposite of a good play for IP. Whereas web three is actually a very strong play for capitalizing on IP when it comes to like NFTs and things like that. And we've seen like a number of IPs attempt to even be built out of Web3. Whereas AI doesn't necessarily, obviously, if you've got some cool ideas of how that would work, great. But I don't see a lot of value in IP for AI because like all you're doing is diluting your IP when you're having AI involved in producing content for that because you're starting to dilute the strength you have in the authoritativeness you have of your IP. And so I I don't see that being like a big help in that area. Now, obviously they could be pushing new IPs or new pipelines or new uh, lots of different avenues for how they could be using AI. But as far as what they're strong for it, like there's strong writing and fiction, like they tried to capitalize with in Web3, that's not really helped by AI. You get very generic fiction and very generic writing out of AI. So unless they're trying to like, again, dilute their quality, that doesn't seem like a big help. So I wonder if they pivot off this by the end of the year, unless they find like a serious foothold, like you talk about like long-term plans and all that, but what what is the big advantage of AI for them unless they find like a, some niche areas in their pipeline or if it's part of a consumer-facing thing, say allowing characters to adapt to player actions or the things that might be a little bit more interesting that are still playing off their strengths, but finding like a consumer-facing side of it that works. Because I don't, again, I don't see this being like a, a big use case for them internally unless they have something they have in mind already.
3: I I don't know. I'll push back on that. I think AI can streamline the production process tremendously. It's not just writing and narrative. It's coding, it's art development, it's ideation and content creation, it's QA, it's like localization. There's so many different areas that you can apply this to, and I'm not going to claim that they've solved it yet. This is something that the entire <laughs> industry is figuring out, but I don't think it's fair to say that it won't help them. So, I think there are plenty of opportunities for them to implement it in game development and seeking to make their processes more streamlined. And that's something I talked about in the letter in the long term, Sure. I'm with you. Like they're going to try and find more interesting applications that are more player facing, that will create new forms of content. And that's like the blue sky that everyone is hoping for that no one has proven yet, but I'm certainly optimistic about. We'll see if we actually get there, but that's, I think it's, it's reasonable. Let's say, I don't think it's too aggressive to like optimistic the claims that they are making.
1: I think it's going will depend on what happens with AI this year, because a lot right now it's very like AI is great with early draft stuff, with ideation, with coding at a very intro level, like meaning like you're not going to be putting a super mature code base into AI, those kinds of things. And this is a company that has a lot of that stuff, the words I just find it difficult for them to find a good place to plug this in, because I feel like the leverage with this stuff is much more on small developers. They're big developers right now. Like you mentioned, obviously, there's ways of training AI on your content and all that stuff, but I don't think you're necessarily going to produce better content. You just produce it faster. But I don't know. I don't feel like that's a value line with what this company produces, but that's my outside perspective. They may have a very different one internally and how they see it. I just don't see this being, for this particular company, a huge help in the current state of AI that could obviously change drastically throughout 2024 if we see some bigger steps in what AI is capable of doing at like the medium to higher level of quality and production pipeline.
2: They may find, you know, if they start looking at doing more MMOs, they may find more use cases inside there as well as you look at being able to generate a huge swath of characters for players to engage with being able to treat, to create large landscapes uh, through the, through ai generation of forest worlds you know, places for them to for players to to commute through you still have the developers the the game designers going in and building out what are those encounters that happen inside those places and such but utilizing ai to help flesh out those speeches you know, the speech that you're having with your npcs building out the train stuff. i think there's certainly areas inside there that that can help build the overall immersion of, especially of something like an MMO is right up generative AI's alley. So to accept, to, right to
1: but that sounds like a very Bethesda kind of play where they're all about like they would create these <laughs> games. that are huge worlds full of me- tons and tons of mediocre content. And Starfield certainly didn't disprove that. And I, I don't, again, like I, I'm not saying it's not viable. Absolutely. Square Enix could go wild with this stuff and use it a ton. It just seems like it lowers the quality of what they do versus the sort of authorship that they have now. Unless, again, they like are needing to really expand out the content beyond what they're capable of or to try and do it on shorter timelines. I just don't see a better... Pro- I see a Bethesda-level product coming out of that.
3: I, I don't know. I, I disagree. I don't think the quality bar will change at all. I think it's about it's more about the timeline, as you say. And that's really important for a company that has struggled to get its mainline releases out the door in a reasonable amount of time. I think the last couple of Final Fantasy titles have been six, seven, eight years in development before they finally hit shelves. If you take a company with thousands of employees and you make them 1% more efficient, like that compounds over time. So I'm not saying it's going to pump out a bunch of like low quality mass produced garbage it's going to be on the edges where they're like seeing these gains in efficiency and productivity That will start to compound over time. And as an organization, as you get better at utilizing these tools, I don't think they're going to change their quality bar just because they can shave a few hours off a process. That's not what these companies do, Square Enix or any other AAA publisher for that matter. The quality bar is incredibly high, and I don't think they're going to move that just to save a few bucks.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we agree pretty much that in order for there to be like major gains, they would probably have to shave down the quality bar in order for minor gains. I think it's pretty reasonable. I just don't know if that's like personally, like from a stock perspective enough to be like, this company is going to turn everything around this year because they're going to make a 1% gain in efficiency on a game that takes them five years instead of six years. But who knows? Like, again, like Japan's usually pretty head on stuff. And I think they will definitely pioneer. A lot, and I think I'm still optimistic that they will find interesting use cases. I just don't see this being as as directly applicable as even Web3 was in a lot of ways, where there was like some very obvious usage uh, around Web3 that I think they latched onto. Whereas this is, they've talked vaguely, and I don't really know exactly what they're going to do with it. And I hope, as you said, like they they start making some of the bigger plans in the near future for for this coming year. And I think I hope we we get to hear a bit more detail on what they have in mind and that they aren't just like saying it and hoping they'll figure it out later and that they actually have some plan. Cause that would be great to see for the whole game industry to see some actual real solid use cases that we could all apply. But I know sometimes like the Japanese industry doesn't really bleed very well over the Western industry very, very quickly because of the language barrier, the culture barrier and all that. So I guess we'll see on that one. But uh, yeah, I'm sure this is a discussion we could have for a long time. And always a fun one as well, because this is still a very unsolved area. And blockchain is as well. Plenty plenty to still figure out in all of that. Trying to make a five-year plan off that, as Dave was pointing out with mobile. Good luck trying to plan for more than six months ahead with technology that is fully unsolved at this point. So a lot of cool stuff to come ahead, though. We're just starting off 2024. And I think it will be an exciting year. I don't think this is going to be boring at all. I imagine the new stories are going to continue to accelerate as things get... Extra spicy this year, just around all the different dramatic technologies, shifts in financial situations and ecosystems, and who knows, maybe new consoles or new other exciting releases that we just didn't see coming that we look forward to. But I look forward to, of course, discussing those with you and all the other panelists here on the podcast as well as you listeners, making sure you catch all the fun stuff we got stored ahead for, again, the foreseeable future to infinity and beyond here with this podcast So make sure to stick around for that. And I thank you if you've been listening through 2023 uh, and hopefully you will continue the habit here in 2024, despite the one week break we took. So you'll forgive us for that. And I hope you got great stuff for for your holidays. I had a great one, of course. And if, thanks to Matt and Dave for a fantastic discussion that, again, we could continue to have for hours here. So we will uh, let you listeners and the panelists get back to what you're doing. But in the meantime, also make sure to email us if you have any feedback, questions, topics, whatever, to novic, uh, podcast at novak.co. I know I haven't mentioned it in a while, and I just want to make sure people don't forget about that, that we still are happy to get any kind of feedback through that email address and make sure you are subscribing both to the podcast rating it of course because we want those five-star ratings it helps and then also making sure you're subscribing to the digest because we will continue to have tons and tons of great content coming this year written by people like matt lots of great stuff to come so make sure you subscribe to that in the meantime enjoy your weekend and we'll see you guys next week
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review.